And now, a Breakthrough Basketball original podcast, The Jim Huber Show. After basketball, his dream is to become a rodeo clown. Jim Huber. Hey, everybody. Oh, it is hard work being this good. I was like, ow. <laughs> <laughs> he sounded like a, a big choo-choo train. We join the Jim Huber Show, already in progress. I did uh, that with not having any type of medication. <laughs> hey, it's Coach Troy. Today on the Jim Huber Podcast, we continue our conversation with one of basketball's greatest minds, NBA skills trainer and Breakthrough Basketball's Don Kelby. I teach in my skills. And again, I, I'm, very much, I'm very much a contrarian when it comes to coaching. I don't know if that comes out. I'm very much a contrarian. Uh, a lot of the things that I learned, I no longer believe in. Okay? I don't believe in reading your defense. Okay? I believe in attacking you and making you stop me. And I believe that offense is about control. Okay? It doesn't matter who has the ball. If I'm guarding, if you have the ball, and I'm guarding you, and I am in control, I'm on offense. In my skills, I try and get players to do what they're best at and to do it immediately. For example, people that teach read your defense and take what the defense gives you. Well, you know what? I'm great going to my right. I can't go left. My defense is giving me the left side, so I'm going to go left. Who's going to win? Defense is going to win. So that's, that's one of the things that I, that I deal with my skills. The reason why it's called attack and counter is I want to attack you with my best. And if you shut down my best, I have a quick counter that I can go to. But I'm not going to care what you are doing to defend me. So, you know, tell me how long your practices are down there, and then how much time do you spend on skill development, like the attack counter and that you do in, in, a, in a high school practice? I spend at least half my practice in skill work. And how does that skill work look? What do, what do you do, skill work in a practice? I, I effectively do the same things that are on the video, and I do the same things that, that, that I do at camps. I even, I even, if you haven't seen it before, I believe if I'm not making passes, I don't want anybody else to pass the ball. Because if you have somebody that's trying to get rep, reps and they're paired up with a passer who has no interest in passing or is having a down day, or, or it destroys your workout. So I actually get chairs out, and I have teams here. I get chairs out. We do movements that are created inside of our offense. And we talk about the purpose for each thing. So we never, we never just grab a ball and take a shot without getting open without making a move to get open. Because I also believe that one of the reasons why skill level is going down, I don't believe the players practice what happens during a game. So we try and set up skill situations. I try not to have more than two players at a basket, definitely not three. I believe in ridiculously high repetitions. I use chairs as passers and we use multiple balls at each basket for one shooter. So... If a shooter's going to shoot for a minute, he can get 25 repetitions in a minute because you don't have to worry about rebounding. You don't have to worry about dropping passes. You don't have to worry about somebody chasing down the ball because you have multiple balls in play for each player. So we will spend, we always start every practice with ball handling and challenging ball handling. Going back to making mistakes and things, and things like that is that when we do ball handling drills, I want my players to lose the ball because nobody gets better by being comfortable. 
You want to get better, you need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And I want you to challenge yourself as much as possible. And if you lose the ball, go pick it up and do it again. And if you lose it again, go pick it up and do it again. I give more praise. I give more praise to players who lose balls because they are stretching outside their comfort zone than I do for, for people who do the drill particularly well. And then we move on. Then we move on to transition skills where we take that ball handling and we normally go, <clears throat> we either go to half court, turn around and come back, or we go full court, but we do something where the ball is on the floor, we're running full speed, and we're getting an enormous amount of repetitions on taking the ball to the basket. And then we move on to jump shooting. Where we get, I, try, I try and get my kids 200 shots a day. I know you're big into footwork, and I know yeah. footwork's big. Now, of course, when you teach it, and you teach the three pivots, forward pivot, right. what back pivot, reverse pivot, whatever they want to call it, and drop, drop step. Right. My question to you is I, I've seen you teach it, and then what you've told individuals like, hey, don't stop them a lot. You know, let them go and, and do it, and they'll figure it out as they go. And they do. Well, I, I think when it comes to, and again, that comes back to the way, the way people learn. Okay? And, and I, I, saw, I saw a comment not long ago um, that I really take issue with where somebody was doing a poll about what are the biggest mistakes that skilled trainers make. And one of, those, one of the questions, one of the answers were they allow too many mistakes. If every time somebody doesn't do something perfectly, you stop them, that is going to instill a fear of failure. I believe in allowing players, empowering players, so I allow them to figure things out. It doesn't mean I leave them alone, okay? but I don't want them to stop because when they can learn it, when they can figure it out, when they start doing things because they believe it's correct instead of doing things that you want them to do, the level of improvement, how quickly they improve, and the, and the enthusiasm that they retain by not worrying about whether or not one repetition is going is to bring the end of the world. It just, it just boggles my mind how quickly they get, they get better. So is it after all the reps are done, then maybe you stop real quick and say, hey, listen, hey, something I noticed here you might think about, bam, and then move on? I do that with, with more status and players that are more secure. But I have, in my camps when I talk to coaches, I say I have three levels of correction. The first thing I try, uh, we always demonstrate first, and we always want kids to try it on their own first. Okay? Then once they start, I want them to get as many repetitions in a short period of time time as possible and there's, there's physiological science behind that and the reason why I do it that way um, but my three levels of correction are this first I will try and correct him as he is moving I don't want him to stop I don't want him to worry about I don't want him to worry about my shots but I'll but I'll be there and he'll be going then as many as he wants and if he turns the wrong way other way other way other foot so let's say we're working on front pivots, okay, and the kid's making an inside pivot. I'll go, and I'll, I won't stop him. I'll have him go. Okay, right foot over left foot. Right foot in front of your left foot. Right foot in front of your left foot. Right foot in front of your left foot. All you have to do is do it correctly once and know it's correct, and all the mistakes go away. And if he does happen to make a mistake, it's only momentary. So I try and get them 
to continue to go and correct them while they're going. The second thing will happen is I'll get in the drill with them. I don't want them to stop, but I do a lot of grabbing shoulders, grabbing hips, stepping on feet. Because one of the things that that does is get kids to listen to you because it's so unusual. They pay attention when you talk. And another thing that Bobby Knight says before you teach him something, you got to get him to listen. Um, so I'll get in the drill with him, and I'll run back and forth with him. And I'll grab him, I'll turn his shoulders in the correct direction. I'll step on the correct pivot foot. And usually after that, it only takes two or three repetitions of doing that, and all of a sudden it becomes programmed, and they go. And not only do they go, but they understand the difference between the two. And only in very, very rare situations, in very, very rare situations, do I stop them and reteach the skill. But then if there's somebody that really, that is really having a problem, I will take them afterwards. Because by using chairs instead of using passers, if you're not in the drill, you can actually pantomime the drills with the guy who's shooting the ball if all you're doing is putting the ball on a chair. So it's not unusual, and, and for those of you who haven't seen what the drills look like, is we have a shooter, if we have two people in a basket, or two people on a chair, the sh- we put a ball on the chair, the shooter will get his own rebound, throw it back to a ball placer, and by the time the player gets back to the chair, the ball will be back on the chair, so all he has to do is pick it up and shoot the ball again. Well, while the shooter is going, it's not unusual to see players practicing their footwork as ball places. They don't need a ball for that. I also try and present to them really big picture. I defy you to tell me that there is a difference between a drop step in the post and a retreat step when you're dependent when you're defending the ball. I constantly hammer on the point that the same things happen over and over and over again. The only thing that changes is situation. Once you get into a into a different situation I'll guarantee that not only don't not only do you know what to do, but you're really good at it, and that provides players with comfort. And as a as a teaching skill, what I try and do is I try and draw on previously learned knowledge instead of trying to teach them something new. The situation might be new, but I'll convince them that they already know what to do. So if somebody is having trouble, what I'll do is I'll relate it to a different situation that I know that he is already confident in. And I'll try and draw a parallel between this that you're good at, just do the same thing that you're good at, just do it over here. And usually they look at me like I have two heads. And then, okay, let's go over here and let's do this. So let's walk through it. And he'll do what he did in the other spot. That's it. And invariably, he just looks up and cocks his head a little bit. All players react the same way. They cock their head a little bit, and then they smile. Um, Shot mentality and triple threat. And I've seen you pull a kid out, hey, who knows triple threat? And they come out, and, of course, they put the ball there, and they're saying, well, I I can shoot it, I can pass it, I can dribble it. Talk about your triple threat in camp and why it works. My triple threat is your first threat is shot. Your second threat is shot, and your third threat is shot. And there are a lot of reasons why I believe that. First, how many points you get for a dribble? None. 
None. Not a threat. I mean, it's a skill. It's an important skill. But it's not a threat. Yeah. How many points you get for a pass? None. I mean, Jim, when you're preparing your teams, have you ever said, hey, number 32's a great passer. Let's take a man off the shooter and double team 32 and don't let him pass. No, I don't think I've ever done that. <laughs> Here's why I teach for everybody. It's shot, shot, shot. There are certain physiological things that happen when you think shot. Think about what happens when you catch the ball and your first and only thought is shot. Where do you face? The basket. You face the basket. Where do your eyes go? The rim. What do your knees do? They get ready, locked, loaded, ready to go. Where does the ball go? Right in the shot pocket or right in position, ready to shoot it. Isn't that what you want to teach your kids? Yeah, actually talk to them about the most kids catch it. Like, they just look around. They, yeah, they, look they catch around it and get sideways yeah. or stand flat-footed. So, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, have you, have you ever seen a kid who is thinking past and he's in the right corner? And he catches the ball, and the only, the only thing he's thinking is to throw the ball back out to the top. And nobody's guarding him. Yeah. But it still comes back to the same thing. There's a, there's a psychological term called um, consequence of choice. And I'm a big believer in Occam's razor. Do you know what Occam's razor is? Simplest explanation is usually the right one. Yep. Is that it? Good job, Troy. Yeah, those uh, seven years of college just paid off big. Yeah. Occam was a Occam was a twelfth century mathematician. He said that the theory with the fewest contingencies will always be the correct one. And you take that to consequence of choice and this is a, a, I, I love to tell this story. The consequence of choices is that the more choices you are presented with, the longer it takes for you to make up your mind, the less confident you are that it's the correct choice, and it's with less conviction that you execute. Do you know what Nathan's is, restaurant? Hot dogs. There's only one reason to go to Nathan's. And that is to buy a hot dog. That is the only reason to go to Nathan's. So I'm in the airport, and there's a Nathan's at the airport, and there's a family with two kids in front of me in line. Now, keep in mind, the only reason to go to Nathan's is to buy a hot dog. It took them 40 minutes to make up their mind. <laughs> what kind of hot because dog do you want? Is there many hot dogs down? How many hot dogs are they, there? Because they had... They had, they had nine different hot dog meals with five different choices of french fries and 17 different drinks, and it took them forever. Now I get to Vegas. We're doing a shooting camp. We take a break for lunch, and they say, you know, one of the coaches says, let's go out to lunch. Have you ever been to In-N-Out Burger? And I said, no. Have you ever been to In-N-Out Burger? Yeah. It's a good place. Okay. Yeah. We walk in there, and there have got to be 100 people in. We can't do this. We'll never get back to the camp in time. He says, you've never been to in and out uh, So don't worry about it. You walk up to the counter. How many things are on the menu? There's a single, a double, yeah. one size fries, one size drink, and that's it. If, you, if you're used to going in and out burger, you might say animal style. But it takes you 10 seconds to make up your mind. And then you have your meal in a minute. I would rather play in in and out burger than play 
in Nathan's, and I love hot dogs. Okay? As coaches, what we do, because, and it's well-intentioned, but it's also traditional, which I am not, uh, that we teach our players triple threat, shoot, pass, dribble. So now you throw the ball to your player. He has to now make up his mind. Am I going to shoot? Am I going to pass? Or am I going to dribble? Am I going to go left? Or am I going to go right? Am I going to penetrate? Am I going to pull up? Am I going to take a layup? Am I going to dish off? And as a coach from the outside, what are you looking at? All you can see is a player that's holding on to the ball, and you get up and you yell and scream, don't hold on to the ball. Why does it take you so long? Don't do something. Well, the reason why it takes him so long is because he's trying to do what you taught him to do. He's going through his litany of things that you have taught him, trying to make a decision. Meanwhile, the game is going on, and that translates into a player standing still holding on to the ball. When active mentally, he is extremely active. He is overactive because he has too many choices. So if you put 10 boxes from left to right on a piece of paper, one says dribble, one says pass, one says shoot, one says go left, one says go right, one says penetrate and kick, one says make a double change, one says, one says shoot a tree, one says penetrate and pull up. He has to go through each box until he makes up a decision. Okay? When I teach shot, 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 and there's another thing that bothers me about coaches. They hear this and they think I'm crazy and I'm a bad teacher because I don't want my players to shoot every time they touch the ball. Well, that's not what I'm saying. You're making another judgment based on a lack of knowledge. Okay? What I am doing is first, I am giving players a starting point. You say triple threat, shoot, pass, dribble. Right, which do you want him to think of first? Where is he going to start? That's not situational. I want players to act. I want them to go forward. So instead of laying those options out horizontally from left to right, I lay them out in a straight line in front of him. So your first option is shoot. You'd only have, I say this at camp all the time, okay, if your triple threat is shot, 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 how many, and how many decisions do you have to make? One, shoot it or don't shoot it. No, those are two decisions. Even that's too complex for me. I'm not very smart. All right. Because the shot decision has already been made because that's your triple threat. The one decision that you have to make is not to shoot it. What do you, what do, you do if you don't shoot it? If you don't shoot it, and you talk to anybody, talk to Nick. You ask him this question, he'll give you this answer. If you don't shoot it, what do you do? You counter. It made him a lot more dangerous after he went to your camp because sometimes he would catch and he'd look to pass. Once he started thinking shot every time, the defense had put pressure on the defense, and the defense had to come up. And even though he's been a late bloomer, he was not a really quick kid early, uh, he was still getting by people because he was thinking shot. They were raising up. And then you taught him, put it on the ground, and you think one thing, you think layup, and things just happen in between, kind of like passes and stuff just happen because you react to the defense. But once he started thinking shot and layup, he became a much better offensive player. Think of it, think of it as doorways. Okay, you come up to a building, and there are 10 doorways laid out left to right. 
How do you know which door to walk through? As opposed to walking to a building that has one door, and you open up that door, and then there's another door, and then you open up that door, and there's another door, and you open up that door, and there's another door. Which way are you going to get into the building more effectively? Standing outside trying to pick a door or walking through doors? So effectively, what I try and do is I try and get players to act, and then I give them a roadmap of where to go afterwards. What I would do with the kid who catches the ball at the three-point line, and that's not his shot. Okay? In teaching skills, I would teach, still teach him the same thing. Okay? But in a team atmosphere, you more define their role. Yeah. When you catch the ball, when you catch the ball, I want you to think shot. If you're in an area where you're not comfortable shooting the ball from, this is your job, and then you make your next cut through someplace where you are comfortable shooting the ball. And when you get the ball in that spot, you think shot. Because when you think shot, okay, and Troy, you have seen this happen, because with, with footwork, and I'm talking to coaches here, I don't know if players listen to this, but I'm talking to coaches here, uh, we can compound counters. We can combine footwork with footwork with footwork with footwork with footwork. Okay? If you're thinking of the end product, it becomes very confusing. And I said, Troy, you have seen this. You have seen this. That when I can get a player to think shot when they catch the ball, everything that comes after that gets easier. Because it gives you a definitive Positive, positive, actionable starting point. And when you start at the beginning, things are a lot easier. Now, on that, Don, when you mention that, say you're a really good post player, and you know teams like even Virginia with Bennett and different teams will come and double hard. Do you have them chin it? You know, you hear a lot of people chin look middle real quick, and to see. Um, to visualize, or you just have like automatically go into it, and they might go into a double team, and what do you do? Want, my, my genesis of it in the post comes from two places. You know Rick Majerus, right? Yes. Okay. Rick was one of the greatest post teachers that I've ever mm. met. You remember, and for those of you who don't know Rick Majerus, he, he, he died a couple of years ago as a head coach at the University of St. Louis, but he was a in addition, he took, it, took Utah to the Final Four, and he started out, he followed Al McGuire at, yeah. uh, at Marquette. Marquette. Majerus was always catch, look baseline. If there's nobody there, go. If there is somebody there, go middle. And then I learned from Bill Cartwright. Uh, Bill Cartwright was a great player in the NBA, great player in college, and he's been coaching in the NBA for a long time. Threatened to break Michael uh, Jordan's legs once. In practice, yeah. you know that he told him you do that again, I'm gonna break your legs, and they found an agreement. Him and him and MJ, yeah, yeah. Uh, but Bill Cartwright teaches attack middle. As soon as you catch, attack middle. And I looked at that, and I said, I because I used to teach both at different times in my career, with varying levels of success. Uh, and I looked at that, and I said, what are they really teaching? Okay. Both of those guys are giving their post players a starting point to execute their skills. I don't believe in reading the defense. 
Because, okay? again, you read the defense, you wind up doing things you can't do. Okay? But both of those guys, are they want, when their post players catch the ball, they want action. Both are really sound philosophies. However, what happens if, you, if, if you're in a Majerus school and you're on the left side and you look baseline and you're not good turning over your right shoulder? Defense wins. So, what, so it's going to be more effective on the right side than it's going to be on the left side. And, and the same thing with Cartwright's philosophy. If you're good going to the middle from the left side and you're not good going to the middle from the right side, it limits your game. So well, I agree with that, too. Like, Don, you're talking about, too, like somebody has like a good jump hook and they're dominant, they're dominant the right hand or whatever yes. to get that strong yes. point. Yes, and, and Bill is always very, also very big on, uh, on drop step counters in the post. Now let's go hey, real quick, Don. You you have we talk about the three pivots, and then you get into your counters. So that's the B. Now we're getting the counters. Question I have for you: I know the four pivots you get into step through. If is is the mentality you talk about? If somebody say comes from the direction that you're coming from, and you step through into them. Would you tell them just to go straight, or are you always going to just step through? Uh, I I pair the counters with the pivots. And the reasons for that are, number one, again, simplicity. And it's something that repetitively you can practice until it becomes instinctual. So you don't have to make decisions. But another thing that I've learned with footwork and with, especially with pivots is that when you make a particular pivot, it puts the defense in a particular spot. There are a lot of reasons for a pivot. Certainly one is to turn and face the basket. But... You take a defender and you put him on a spot. Make a front pivot and see where that puts you in relation to the defense. Make an inside pivot. See where that puts you in relation to the defense. By making particular pivots, it puts defenses in particular spots. And I pair the counters to, with the pivots to be able to take advantage of where the defense winds up when you make that particular pivot. So, again, you don't have to make a decision because if the defense is not where he needs to be, that means you have a shot when you're thinking shot, shot, shot. And, again, I realize if, if you haven't seen the video, if you haven't been to camp, that, that some, of this, some of this imagery may not be very clear to you. But I know it is to you, Jim, and I know it is to you, Troy, that if, if you're out on the right wing and you, and you make an outcut and you call for the ball with your left hand and your left foot, you catch, you make an inside pivot with your right foot coming back, the defense has to be coming from where? has to be coming inside. from inside, and it's going to be on top of you. It has to be. If he's guarding you, okay? so your counter being a sweep where you would push with your left foot and your right foot would go towards the basket takes advantage of where the defense has to be, has to be. Remember, I'm on offense. I'm in control. You have no choice. You have to be there. And that makes my counter effective. If you are not there, I have a shot. Shoot. I'm thinking shot, shot, shot. Yeah. It, it has to be without exception. It has to be. 
I mean, I agree. Like Don, when I when I see it, like the the like L cut back pivot sweep, I, I I see that the drop step back pivot, I see that. Sometimes they're coming off maybe a down screen. The guy's on your say trailing you a little bit. No, it's maybe a curl option, but the guy comes up, catches it into a forward pivot, one two step or a quick stop and looking shot, and that guy's running. They kind of like trailing him. It, to me, is that's like instead of a step through, can they take that lead foot and just boom, go attack the glass instead of going back into that defender? That's the only one I was kind of curious about. Oh, I mean, you can, you can uh, again, that's, that's, that's situational. That's really situational. I mean, you know, is anybody going to get a ticket or is anybody going to be punished if they don't, if they don't, if they don't use the same counter with the same, with the, with the, with the pivot? But in that situation that you're talking about, you can also, it's the same thing to incorporate a sweep. Yeah, just, exactly. Just, yeah, that's what I'm jump. saying. You would sweep and go, yes, exactly right. Jump. Yes, yes. Let, let me, let me totally. Ask, let, me ask, let me ask you this. But, but again, there are reasons why I teach the way that I teach and what I teach. And again, it's because I'm trying to get rid of that consequence of choice. Okay, you, you ever have a player that only goes right? Yeah, that was, that was me in high school. <laughs> Even in, no college and Come college. On now. and it Let's didn't work in college. It worked in high school, <laughs> did not work in college. Yeah. But but you have a player that always goes right, and he has a certain level of success. And and you're talking to people, and you're thinking that you know if I can get this kid to go left, he's going to be more effective. Because every once in a while, what will happen is he'll get the ball, he'll go right. And somebody will have him play it and he'll get stopped. But when he catches the ball and he goes right immediately and says, God, he's so tough going to his right. Can he be that tough going to his left? The answer is no. He can't be. And it's not a skill thing. It's a mentality thing. He is so comfortable. He's so intuitive going to his right that his decision to go to his right is so much faster than his decision to do anything else then it doesn't matter. He may be very competent going to his left, but it takes him so long to make the decision to go left, it shows up as him being defended. Right, right. Going right has the power of immediacy for the guy, right? The immediacy. Elgin Baylor said, as a matter of fact, I wrote an article about this. Elgin Elgin Baylor, who was the original Michael Jordan, they asked him whether he was six foot five and was just a monster. And they asked him what the most important thing in his game was. And he said, immediacy. He said, when I get the ball, whatever I'm going to do, I need to do it immediately and do it with conviction. Well, that, that another question I have for you, too, is you mentioned Bobby Knight a couple times. The general always talks about the shot fake. Shot fake. Now, tell me what's your thoughts on shot faking. I don't believe in shot fakes. I believe in shot. Uh, and and I've seen this comment too uh, that somebody somebody said I can't believe there's a coach that doesn't believe in shot fakes. You know, it's much better to throw the ball into the guy's hand. That has nothing to do with anything. That that's just expounding ignorance. In 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 my hierarchy of thinking, your first thought is shot. Your second thought is shot. Your third thought is shot. And the only decision you have to make is not to shoot it. So when you catch the ball. And you're immediately faced up. You're immediately ready to explode up in the air and the ball's in your in shooting position. And you see me. I'm the best shooter you've ever seen. 
Okay? You gotta sleep I'm the best shooter you've ever seen. When you go to sleep at night and you dream about great shooters. I think of you. I'm gonna think about you tonight, okay? Don. And and I catch and I'm shot, shot, shot. I catch and I'm faced and I'm loaded. And I square to the basket. I gotta what lift. I gotta lift. I gotta be in your face. I gotta have my hands up. Do I have to move at all? All I have to do is put the ball in shooting position. And if you are not stopping my shot, the ball's going. Because the only decision I have to make is not to shoot it. Not to shoot it. Now, what about, Don, what about in the post where you, like, Scott, you see, like, big men, you know, they're shot blockers. They leave their feet so much. Is that something like getting a kid's six-inch ball fake, the basket, getting the guy up, getting in his body, or do you do anything like that? I See, because they're going up anyway. I believe in trying to step by the defender. I don't believe in those shot fakes. Because, you know, now in, with, with the advent of uh, with so much video, I, I'm going I'm to challenge you to do a couple of things because I'm going to bring up something else as well. But the metrics on shot take shots are not good. Understand what I'm saying? Yes. That, that if you, take, you take an overall shooting percentage. You take an overall play, okay, so, so Jim Jubilee is a, is a 47% shooter. It's pretty good. You separate out what your shot fake shot percentage is. Mm-hmm. I'll guarantee that it's significantly lower than just shooting. 47%. So if I, if the idea is like catch, catching the post going into it, if I catch it, got my shoulders, chest square, the backboard, of guys there on me. You just stepping through, just going quickly right up into it. That that's that would be that would be my first choice. Because what I, what I deal with all the time is, is that why didn't you shoot that? Well, he was going to block it. How do you know? How do you know that you weren't going to make the shot? How do you know that he wasn't going to foul you? How do you know? That you weren't going to get the, that you were going to you weren't going to miss the shot, and your teammate was going to dunk the rebound. How do you know? How do the uh, the pros that you work with? How do they? Because they've been taught a certain way. You've worked with like Boozer and these guys. How do they take that no shot fake thing? Do they buy it? They all well. They're they're different. Okay, and and the reason why I, why I said I mean I, there are there are some players that I have taught things to, but. One of the first times that I started, the first player I ever worked with was Clarence Weatherspoon. I was still coaching in college when I did that. Spoon, he could, he could dunk that guy. He he get up and throw he down. Was, he was really strong. And so Jeff Van Gundy sent him to me because he was going to spend two weeks in Florida in August, and then he was going to come back, and they were going to go to trading camp. So I had known Jeff for a long time, and Jeff calls me, and we talked about working with. Pros. I mean, I was lucky. I had three pro players that played for me. And he said, working with pros, they all want to get better. As long as they think that what you're telling them is going to make them better, they're going to accept that, and they're going to work it really hard. He says, but one thing is, don't screw with their shot. So he, he explained a bigger picture to me, which at the time, I, it was the first time it had been presented to me, and it really makes a lot of sense. And I put this into play with, with a lot of the other guys that I've worked with, is that they are at the very top in the world, 7 billion people. They are the top 
450 players in the world. Okay? They got there by being able to do certain things. It may not be textbook, it may not be pretty, and it may not even be right, but they can do them. So let them do certain things the way they want. I remember that is the person I think I had the most impact with in their career was Roger Bell. But I had Roger his, his entire career. And Roger's in the, in the top 20 when he retired. I don't know where he is now because I haven't checked. Uh, but when he retired, he was in the top 20 all time in three point shooting percentage. And he and I had a different relationship than a lot of the pros that, that I worked with because we were very good personal friends as well. We used to do things personally. And one day I said to him, because he, and he shot a very flat shot. And one day I said to him, I said, as good as you are, I think that if you get the ball up a little bit higher, you'll even be better. And we went, we had a couple of workouts and he was, he was, he was unbelievable. And then he came to me one day and he says, you're probably right, but I'm not going to do it. And I understood why. Because, because you're at the top of your profession doing something, doing something a particular way. To change that, you risk getting worse as well as getting better. The quickest way to improvement is not to change what somebody does. It's to take what he does and try and make him better at it. The number of repetitions that we would have to go through in order to make that change was not going to be worth the half a percent or the one percentage point that it was going to make him as a better shooter. Now, when you're a volume shooter, you're taking as many shots as he has over a 14-year career. One percent results in a significant number of made shots. But we could have gotten close to that by staying with the same shot form and getting more repetitions. And he actually came to me one day, called me in the middle of the season one day, when he was in a little bit of a shooting slump. And what he had done was when he went in to work out and work on his shooting, he put extra arc on it just to shoot it, just to get it higher. Because usually when he missed shots, it's because he, got, he was flat to begin with, but he got to be too flat. So rather than just adjust a little bit, he adjusted big and then let the shot come back to where it was comfortable for him. And that grew out of work during the summer. He, ne- he never put more arc on his shot in terms of shooting the ball, but there are times when he would drill just to get the feeling of the ball getting up higher so it wouldn't get any flatter. He would throw the ball really high. It was things like that. I mean, it, we worked, he and I worked on, worked on footwork and worked on, worked on ball handling a great deal, especially earlier in his career. But pros are different. That wasn't going to be his job. So as his career went on, we didn't work on it as much. One of the things that I worked on with Bruce Bowen that I thought was, was pretty good was him catching the ball and shooting it more on the move than he had been used to. But I wasn't going to get inside of their particular skills that they were at the top of the world already. And there was no need to change that. So I just took what they did and tried to get them enough repetition so whatever they did, they got it better. 
Don, I know you have tanning to do. You have a date by the pool in Florida. So uh, well, I drive up to Orlando, go see Joe, hang out at the pool. That's right. Joe huh? Hafner's down there now, isn't he? You and Joe. Yeah, he, he called me yesterday. Don, you got 13 attacking counter camps coming up. You can find all of them listed at donkelbickbasketball.com, also at breakthroughbasketball.com. The first one is in Minneapolis in April, and then the last one, I think, you wrap up in Roanoke, Virginia in August, and all points in between. All right, that's a wrap, Jimmy. Say hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Those aren't pillows. See that Bears game last week? Yeah, hell of a game, hell of a game. Bears got a great team this year. They're going to go all the way. Oh, yeah.